Welcome back to Country Roads Confidential here at earsports.com. Tantalizingly close. We are we are first in goal from the start of the regular season and I will spare you any type of poetic introduction or any of my words because I want to give as much time and space today to someone that I know I want to hear from and I'm assuming you do too. I can't think of a better source than my guest right now, the signal caller, Jed Drenning. Jed Butterflies bigger and and busier right now. You know, I might actually be second goal at this point, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're quickly approaching third and goal. Uh, we had our production meeting with IMG a few weeks back, or even longer at this point, and that's kind of the unofficial kickoff for us to get things rolling. And and uh, here we find ourselves chest deep, I guess at this point, or approaching it waist deep at least in uh, game week. Uh, the closer you get, the busier you get, but in a good way. Uh, now it's just a matter of all the way up to the tipping point. You're still going to find yourself trying to uh, steal an extra few minutes to, to watch a little more tape, uh, to find a few more pointers to, and, and uh, see how these things go. But there's there's a lot to sink your teeth into for this opener. Obviously, with Neil kicking off a new era on the West Virginia side, uh, a lot of storylines on the JMU side, a challenging, challenging, daunting opener uh, for the Mountaineers. We're going to find out a lot about this team probably sooner than we would hope. Uh, uh, at the FCS level, it doesn't get much better than the JMU's North Dakota State's the world, right? So uh, we're going to be tested, and uh, we're going to be tested in a lot of different ways from a creative standpoint, from an athletic standpoint. These are a lot of smart kids that populate this JMU roster, too. Uh, it's not an easy school to get into academically. That's something that people don't talk a lot about of uh, either, so they're very coachable kids. But uh, we're going to have our hands full, and it's going to be uh, – we're going to have our hands full for the balance of 60 minutes, but it's almost here, and I, I got some big butterflies at this point. Logan Timmons and I have very little in common, except that I think I could do his job right now, and I could run through the line of scrimmage after <laughs> listening to your introduction there. Hey, you're a busy man. You're watching film. You have a pretty cool full-time job that takes you all over the place. You're podcasting. You're writing. I want to talk to you about your, your sideline gig, which is just a couple of hours a week, I think, on the air, but it seems like it keeps you busy for a lot of other time that people don't realize, but you've been around the film, Mm -hmm. you've been around the practices and there's so many things that I think people want to know about that you probably have a good insight on. And I know you can't let all the secrets out, but the big question I think that a lot of people ask and you can answer uh, and it's broad. So maybe we'll just start with offense. How's that? But we're accustomed to a certain brand of football and we know what it looks like the past eight years. What is it going to look like Saturday? Well, the funny thing is this. Uh, I found myself watching JMU, and I saw air raid packages in last year's JMU offenses with Mike Houston. So some of this has caught mainstream to the point that a lot of these packages, a lot of these staple routes are being run not just by air raid guys but by everybody. So there will be some parallels in terms of what fans are used to seeing, especially when uh, when West Virginia sets to push the football downfield and what Neal's going to do. But Neal was more than just a big play offense at Troy. Uh, he almost reinvented himself to some extent each week. Uh, the biggest difference I would say on both sides of the football, there's going to be a lot more movement. Uh, Neil's a guy that really likes to test the eyes of the defense with a lot of motions and shifting, pre-snap looks to test and see where the defense might react uh, to create some extra scenes one way or the other. He's pretty creative in that respect. So, so that's something that's going to be a lot different. But the, but the larger point will be this. 
Neil very much recognizes or very quickly recognizes each game is its own little narrative. So you might have to play high octane and hit the gas this week and have an 85-90 snap game and win a shootout, but there's also going to be times you've got to help your defense out, slow things down, pump the brakes a little bit, maybe get a couple first downs and punt. Uh, so he's kind of that – I've called him that unicorn. He's an offensive-minded guy who sometimes calls a game to help his defense out. Uh, I keep going back to the LSU game in 2017 when Troy went into Baton Rouge and knocked those guys off to snap that non-conference winning streak that LSU had. When you watch that game, one of the things that jumped out to me was with about five minutes to go in the football game, the Troy defense had only been on the field for 46 snaps. Yeah. Now what that did was it gave them the fresh legs to finish strong, which they needed. They ended up at like 62, 63 snap count, but they were fresh. And that was something very much done by design. Neil had that intent going into that football game to help thicken that defense out, play keep away. But then there's also times he won shootouts. So he recognizes each week's going to be different, but from a strategic standpoint, from a tactical standpoint, you're probably going to see a little more motion and probably a little more creativity off that motion in the run game. Really good point. I've had a lot of people ask me, I, I do a little film thing for our website, and I've had a lot of people ask me to do something in the preseason about, hey, what does this offense look like? And I tried a little bit to look at it, but 2018 was not 2017, was not 2016, was not 2015. And not only that, but the seasons were different, but you're right. Game to game is different. So I get sure. what you're saying there, which is a great sign. I think some people well, take, are maybe... take this real quick, Mike. Last mm -hmm. year, 2018 wasn't 2018. November of 2018 yeah. wasn't September of 2018. Because you got to remember, Troy lost their starting quarterback halfway through the seasons. So they had to regroup and rally around that defense even more and really reinvent what they were all about. They won a football game with 12 points and 220 total yards of offense, a conference game, 12 to 7. So that was down the stretch. They went 5 and 2 with a backup quarterback by playing small ball. So he does change himself, not just between seasons, but even week to week, and certainly when personnel dictates. So the variation you mentioned can be really constructive. It can be helpful, but it's always built around something, and that's what I can't put my finger on. Is there a common denominator through his good Troy teams, I don't know, maybe even Kentucky or Texas Tech, where you say, you know what, that actually is the Neil Brown staple because he can help his defense. I've seen him do it in mm -hmm. quick game and screen game when he couldn't run, but I've also seen him do it with the run game too, where just keep away from the other team's offense. But is there a, a thing that is his across seasons and across staffs even? Well, the one thing he's consistently done is pick his spots and push the football downfield when possible. They have a lot of 40-plus yard plays ranked toward the top of the Sun Belt the last couple of years. Uh, Troy, obviously, was successful in doing a lot of that at Texas Tech. We saw that up close and personal in 2012. Uh, even got away with some of that against those SEC defenses at Kentucky. Uh, there's a big play element to his passing game. You have to make plays down the field, and here's where that's going to – play a role right now when you have an offense that lacks continuity these guys haven't obviously played together uh it's patchwork right now it's guys that haven't repped together with with live game reps so what it's going to be difficult to do is consistently possession after possession get on the field and string together 10 and 12 play drives that are mistake free so a couple things have to come out of that first I think even in a game like JMU in an opener what you're gonna have to do is probably find a way to convert a couple third and longs to bail yourself out because 
to play mistake-free football and not think there's going to be times you find yourself behind the chains, that's probably just fool's gold, okay? And the other part of it is big plays, whether they be in the run game or whether they be on the perimeter, and those two things can tie together. It might mean Sean Ryan high-pointing the football down the field. It might mean Sam James taking the top off the coverage. It might mean Kennedy McCoy taking advantage of a second-level block by one of those receivers and popping one for 50, 60 yards. If you can come away with a drive that yields points and you're not forced to stay on the field for 10, 12 snaps to do it, that's always going to be a benefit as this, as this offense tries to find a stride together and develop some level of continuity. And the history of Neal's offense suggests that strategically he's going to find a way to pick his spots and make that happen. Let's flip sides here. You and I are, are part of a club that was dwindling in membership the past few years. We kind of mm-hmm. like the old defensive coordinator. We thought he did good stuff, mm-hmm. and maybe he was hamstrung. And um, I don't know. It's it's not necessarily a bad thing that they've changed, though, because this does seem invigorating, and it maybe is mm-hmm. good for the defensive line. I worry about people who are going to watch the defense for the first time on Saturday and see a three-man defensive line and see an odd front and panic and go, oh, my God, they lied to us. But that actually is the 4-2-5. Tell me about some of the fact and fiction as to well, how this but, is going to I'm going to toss a couple of names out here who lean on an odd front defense as almost their staple defense, Nick Saban and Bill Belichick. Okay. Pretty good. People for some reason think that it's all about the numbers that are stacked across the line of scrimmage. That's not how you stop the run. That's not how you have production on defense. There's multiple ways to do it. But what this comes down to, I mean, go back and revisit what Iowa state did against us and everybody else last year that has the new England Patriots copying part of their scheme. Okay, that was a three-man front. It's about run fits. That's what it's about. It's about deception, subterfuge, and run fits. You can put three guys at the point of attack. The question is, who's going to fill as the fourth and fifth guy, and where's that guy coming from? It creates indecision along the offensive line. It's not as simple as identifying and say, all right, we got four guys to line of scrimmage, therefore we're immediately strong against the run. That's not how this works. So Vic is a big guy on deception as well. I talked about that this summer in one of the podcast episodes. The truth of the matter is he's at his best probably when you find something that works at those hybrid positions, but that's not a necessity. I mean, he can also kick into an even front and have an extra defensive lineman in there and run his version of a 4-2. But the truth of the matter is he's at his best when he's doing both. He's running an even front and he's running an odd front, and when the odd front's there – you got to guess where that fourth guy is coming from. I mean, look back to the Pittsburgh Steelers in the NFL under Dick LeBeau. I think for the course of eight years, they were in the top three against the run in the NFL with an odd front defense. That's because they understand this concept. Okay, This isn't about how many guys line up with their hand in the dirt along the line of scrimmage. That's not how you stop the run. The way you stop the run is, again, you create indecision and confusion along the front. And, of course, you've got to populate it with the best playmakers you have. One of the key differences going to be, particularly when you see us in that even front, instead of playing gap control and trying to draw double teams and free things up for the second level players, uh, as you saw on the previous odd front, we're in an even front right now, they're going to be asked to disrupt, to get upfield, make plays, penetrate. Now that has a risk too. There's quadrants that they have to maintain and that there has to be integrity in those quadrants or they'll pop a seam and have a big play in the run game there. But that's one of the fundamental differences that you'll see. You'll see the defensive line being asked to get upfield instead of trying to create more opportunities for the second-level players to get downhill and make plays for them. So that's one of the interesting things here. But, again, 
when you talk about Dick Koenig, what I think of is a guy that believes in four-man pressures. He, he likes to maintain numerical integrity and coverage. I mean, there's times he'll bring five, a fifth guy, and sometimes even more than that, but he'll pick his spots. He's a big believer in four-man pressures, and that might mean four down and chopping up the front with some stunts and some twists and even some pre-snap movement, what we call stemming, to confuse the offensive line. But even if it's a three-man front, the question becomes, where's that fourth guy coming from? to make it a four-man pressure. And you'll see a lot of that out of Vic Koenig, and it puts him in position to drop six or even sometimes seven guys into coverage. So the question becomes, how quickly can we adjust to a new system? Uh, well, sometimes that's where the youth kicks in. You don't have to break old habits because they don't have old habits, right? You're starting from scratch with these young guys. So sometimes that's a benefit to have a shorter memory. Give me one second. I'm crossing off all the questions on my list that you answered right there because that was <laughs> okay. a, a full response, but it was good. I can see people tapping one another on the shoulder in the stands on Saturday and reciting your lines, so hopefully they give you credit for that. But one thing that I think we'll be able to identify is what you just mentioned there, the three-man, the four-man, where the pressure's coming from. One thing that's going to be different that may be harder to identify is the coverages. Uh, Gibson mm-hmm. loved to play single high or cover three where he would spin guys back to have that umbrella over it. Um, Vic likes to play quarters, but you and I have discussed this. It's not really traditional quarters coverage, um, and it can be a hybrid even on the same play. Um, how does this work? And if someone's sitting on tele- at home on watching on television or in the stands, um, how can they diagnose exactly what the heck he's trying to do back there? Yeah, from the stands, it might be difficult because from okay. the field, it's sometimes going to be difficult. The whole point of it is to make it difficult for the opposing quarterback. So um, the, the problem is this. If you – as a defensive play caller, you don't want to tip your hand. It, irrespective of what coverage you're going to roll out there, you don't want them to know pre-snap. They're absolutely in this coverage. It's a pure cover three. It's a pure cover four. It's a pure cover two or two man, wherever it might be. You want to, again, create indecision in the mind of the quarterback. That's the only advantage that you have defensively. All the advantages in the game of football, to me, go to the offense, okay, the snap count, where the ball's going, the portion of the field that's going to be attacked. All the rules changes for the better part of the last several decades have been to create more points to satisfy the fans, all right? The only thing a defense has, okay, in its toolbox is the possibility of creating indecision. So, once again, that's something you're going to try and draw from. If you play straight quarters coverage, there are shortcomings in quarters coverage, just like there are shortcomings in any coverage. And the first thing I would think as a quarterback, if I'm lining up against a defense that I see identify as a quarters team, you've seen some of this. Pat Narduzzi is one of the better defensive coordinators in the country, one of the better defensive coaches in the country. What he did at Michigan State was impressive. What he's done at Pitt hasn't been impressive on the defensive side of the football, but there have been some snags, and some of those snags come to mind. For instance, uh, when Oklahoma State came to town, they were a team that was built to seize on the shortcomings of quarters coverage. With all those RPOs, if you go against the quarters coverage team, those safeties are very active. What happens is they start flying downhill and run support, and you can take advantage of it by filling the void behind them with skinny posts and various vertical routes. That's what Oklahoma State did when they torched pit up at Heinz Field. So what you want to do, if you want to introduce some elements of quarters coverage into your scheme, which Vic does, you don't want to tip your hand. So it's a hybrid coverage. It's a version that's called palms. Okay. Now, depending on who you ask, that name can come from any number of places. One says because you like to get your hands on people off the line of scrimmage, but there's other theories on that. What that means is it might be quarters to one side, but pre-snap, the quarterback's not going to be able to tell which side it's quarters to. But to the other side, it could be a completely different coverage based on the route combinations that the receivers present with. 
So if the second guy in goes vertical, that might dictate one coverage to that side. If the, if the second receiver in goes to the flat, that might dictate another coverage. Meanwhile, he's combining that with elements of a quarter's coverage. So that's how you can get away with production or find production by running versions of quarter's coverage without tipping your hand and asking an offense, hey, you understand their shortcomings to a quarter's coverage, so come on and come out and seize on those shortcomings. So that's what Vic is. He's done a very good job of that, mixing things up. Pre-snap, it's difficult to tell the coverage that he's going to land in post-snap, and that's how you create you know, confusion in the mind of a quarterback and in the mind of the route runners. So if you want to introduce some quarters coverage, which is something Gibby steered clear of, this is one way to do it. Okay, you still have that level of uncertainty on the offensive side because they don't even know quarters is coming at them, and even when it does, it's not always a true quarters coverage anyway. Interesting. I want to go back to a point you made about Brown and getting to know the opponent and what he's going to do to help his team win. Um, these are new opponents for him. Big 12 is going to be cool. new. Um, obviously, the non-conference teams are new, but I look at his non-conference record, his success against some Power 5 opponents and what they've done in bowl games. That says to me that he's pretty good at learning quickly for these one-off games, which means that this first year, they're all one-off games for him, but he'll be able to get yeah. a beat pretty fast. Why do you think that is? Is it so simple for him because his approach, does he have a good staff? Is it an inherent trait that he has that maybe others don't possess? Well, it's not a cop-out answer to say it's a little bit of each of those things. And okay. you start with this. I mean, there are certain tendencies that he has from a game prep standpoint that he holds true to. And the beauty of that is it truly is more about his guys than it is about their guys. So if you take the same approach and you consistently model things after that approach, your players are going to start picking up on it. Your players are going to start getting used to it. And in other words, there are elements of what I'm quite sure from a game planning standpoint that he took against us in 2012 at Texas Tech against West Virginia that he's still going to be looking at coming into this James Madison game. So the uncertainty is kind of removed from the equation when it's about you and it's not about them. That's, that's one of his greatest strengths, I think. Time for two more here. Um, I want to spring an anecdote on you that you might not remember, but I do. But we bumped into each other at an early practice, and they were doing – well, I'll let you tell what type of drill it was and why it's significant. But it was Kenny and McCoy running basically wildcat plays during a pretty early formative stage of camp. And it wasn't long that before people were saying, oh, my gosh, they're wasting time running Kenny and McCoy in the wildcat. It was that, but it wasn't that. And it's actually kind of a neat little window into how efficient and you know, kind of all-encompassing he is in his practice and his preparation. But do you remember that, and what did that tell you? Well, I do remember that. It was, uh, I think it was the first or second day of installation. And what that told me was there's going to be a time that he draws from that. Now, that might be next week. That might be October. That might be November. We don't know when that's going to be, but he doesn't want it be, to be something new and foreign to the guys when he, when he first calls on it. I mean, you heard Matt Moore talk about some of this yesterday in his presser. He said, look, we, we want to introduce as many situations to these guys as we can because at some point throughout the course of the season, we're going to be using these things, and we don't want them to be new to them then. So the more things that you can introduce them to, whether it's the Wildcat or some other concept, at least it's not entirely foreign and new to them the first time that you're going to roll it out against whoever it might be later in the season. Final question. You were dealing with a uh... – energy infused so we say a character on the sideline the past few years but you also get to know where you can and can't go how you approach people what's the safe spot on the sideline um, and I think people think that Neil Brown is very different than Daniel Holgerson however I saw him get a unsportsmanlike conduct penalty against I 
believe Nebraska for going wild on an official. Uh, he has some moments where he flares up. What's your plan of attack for being on the sideline and approaching him and knowing the ways around the corners as you get to know him early on here? Well, you, you kind of got to feel people out, uh, but a competitor is a competitor. Dana was a competitor. Neil's a fierce, fierce competitor. Uh, they're alike in more ways than some people might recognize. Uh, you know, you talk about the river go- riverboat gambler aspect of things. I mentioned on the podcast last time out, look at fourth down attempts the last four seasons. West Virginia, 74. Troy, 87. I don't think a lot of people would guess that, okay? Uh, that's not what, what Neil strikes you as, but he has that in him. So I remember back in 2011, it was later in the season, uh, I, I consider it kind of a seminal breakthrough moment with Dana. There was a long extended TV timeout down at South Florida. It was that game that we had to come from behind in the fourth quarter. Stedman made the big catch. We had the game-winning field goal to seal the BCS bid and head to the Orange Bowl. But there was a point in the second half of that game where there was an extended TV timeout. It might even have been an injury. And uh, Dana and I kind of found ourselves in proximity to one another. And uh, there was a, a brief conversation that took place. It was a conversation about some coverages. And uh, I think at that moment, he maybe started to recognize, oh, okay, well, it's not just some idiot. All right, maybe he knows a thing or two. So I'll entertain him for five or ten seconds while I'm bored here during this timeout because I just finished my conversation with my, my running backs coach. So uh, maybe there'll be a moment like that. Maybe there won't. Uh, uh, but you, you just kind of got to tread cautiously. Uh, understand that, look, I'm, I'm invited into his backyard. Uh, as he does his job, right? Uh, and so I'm going to do anything I can to accommodate Neil. I mean, that's what this is all about at the end of the day. I can promise you this. Our first interview going in at half will be one question because I entirely want to leave the ball in his court. Look, I don't want to take up more than more time than, than I have to. You decide how much time you have to, for me right now before you need to get into the team. I'm going to ask you one question. You can expand on it. You can be sure it's entirely up to you. And that's kind of how I'll move forward from there. I've had the same approach with you on this podcast, so I know exactly what you're talking oh, about. Oh, there you go. So, yeah. Um, there you go. Uh, before we go, I, I hate when you write stories because, one, they're so good, and I can tell that so much when I know them, and I really wish that I could do stuff like that and say it like you did. And I hate when you write stories because I know it's going to be like another week or two before I get to read another one, and I mean that as the highest form of praise. Oh. But, so keep well, writing. I, I appreciate keep writing, that. Please. My, my wife agrees with you. She hates when I write stories, too. <laughs> so, so keep that up. But also, you, we're now on the same block podcasting, and you're actually on the corner way before I was on this. And uh, again, it's a really good way to learn and make yourself smart. But uh, feel free, please, plug what you have planned, when's it's coming, where can people find it, what can they expect? Because I think it's worth everybody's time. Uh, it's the Signal Caller podcast. I appreciate it. It's it's all the platforms, the usual suspects. You know, your your uh, your uh, iTunes, your Podomatics, anywhere that you can find your typical podcast, you're probably going to find this one. Uh, that's what I've learned. Uh, it, there's no real set schedule to it. Matter of fact, I intended to have one out this week already, but some technical difficulties, which is a high-minded way of saying, you know, the pseudonym for me me being an idiot i i don't understand the technical side of it enough to pull it off and i have some snags that i encountered i'm trying to overcome but i hope to get one out before the james madison game uh but the the idea is now that the summer's behind us i had some pretty lengthy ones that i had plenty of downtime to orchestrate that over the course of the summer they'll be much briefer but to the point each week leading up to the west virginia games throughout the course of the season and then you talked about the articles uh i should have an article for the JMU game at WBUsports.com. Probably, I'm guessing, it should be posted sometime tomorrow. I know I, I think I have to have it into to editing late tonight, so uh, so Joe Swan can make me sound smarter than I really am. 
So it'll be probably sometime tomorrow at WBSports.com, taking a kind of a historical War of 1812 approach to this game. Well, I have good news for people. We're talking on Wednesday. This will come out on Thursday. So when you say tomorrow, it actually means today. These people won't have to. Oh, there you go. Long. So that's perfect. There you go. See, that's, that's the other thing. When you talk about learning people that you're interviewing. Dana was never a big fan of faking what day it was. I mean, I can tell you that. I, I know that when we would interview, just don't ask me to pretend it's tomorrow when it's today and I have to act like this and that and later today. I said, trust me, I can't keep up with that anyway. I'm not going to ask you to do that. So. <laughs> Well, I recommend checking it out today. Go listen to the podcast. And if I must say, listen to the one on Vic Koenig because it's so slickly produced. It's sharp. It's smart. It's really good. You should be proud of yourself for that. And uh, I'm proud we got you on here, Jeb. We had our own little technical difficulties, but we worked it out. So thank you very much for helping me out. And we are going to wrap it up here. That is all for this time. I will see you next time for Earsports.com. I am Mike Casaza. Take time to tell your friends. Take care of each other.